The American author Mark Twain once said that faith is believing what you know isn't true. And I think that's probably a pretty commonly held view, isn't it, of faith? That faith is somehow believing what you know isn't true, isn't really connected to facts. And so this little letter of Jude, one of the brothers of Jesus, is actually about how faith is believing what we know is true because God has revealed it. See, the danger that Jude sees, which prompts his writing, he tells us a few verses in, is that they drift from the revelation of Scripture into subjective wanderings. Now, take a moment just to take that in, because believers at this point in time, Christianity is religio illicita, illegal religion. There are legal religions, religio licita in the Roman Empire, ones that you're allowed to act out and to live out together. So there are certain special dispensations for other religions aside from the Roman sort of cult of, of mythological gods. Judaism was one of them. Christianity was not. And the reality of that meant that believers faced the very real prospect of losing their jobs, of losing their homes, of trial, of imprisonment, and even death. But for Jude, the number one worry that prompts his writing is that they may abandon the faith. And so his call is, fight for faith. So I want to show you here a message for the moment, a story to remember, the imposters among them, and then the fate of the faithful. If you turn just to those first four verses, whether that's on your phone or the sheet there or Bible in front of you, I'm going to show you the message for the moment. I want to ask you, you know, just to think about as we come to this, how do you introduce yourself? You know, when you meet someone new and they ask you about you, who are you, what, what do you do? What's most important? What do you lead off with when you introduce yourself? Listen to Jude's introduction. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude worships Jesus, his earthly speaking brother, as God before claiming brotherhood. You notice that. Faith comes first for Jude. And this is a huge turnaround. Here, just verse one, these first sort of little phrases here, because the grace of God has worked in Jesus' brother's life. Both Jude and James, who goes on to write the epistle of James. It shows us that proximity to Jesus isn't the same as faith. They've both lived all their lives around Jesus. They've not always had their faith in Jesus as God. They didn't believe he was God before. We know this from the gospel writers. Mark chapter 3 verse 21. When his family heard it, what was going on around Jesus, the things he was saying, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. But now, Jude says, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. What a turnaround. To those called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And this is a letter that's probably circular. It's not just to one church, to a group of churches in a particular region, very possibly similar region to which Peter sends his epistles. 
But it's definitely to believers, those called, beloved, kept for Jesus Christ. And Jude here roots his hope in being called by God to be saved, in being loved just because and kept for Jesus. And so should we. And then look look at what he asks, what he desires for them here. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, verse 2. Here's what he desires for them. Mercy, peace, and love. And by extension, it's not only what Jude desires for them, but it's what he believes is threatened amongst them. And Jude tells us here he's had a change of plans. We know a thing or two about those, don't we? He's planned to come with one message, but the moment has dictated he give another. He's wanted to encourage, but reality has kicked in, and he has to go the opposite way. Because the life for God's messengers is one where the message constrains you, where it's not about sharing the message that you wanted to give. It's about the one that people need to hear. Jude wanted to encourage them, but realises, I need to challenge you. I need to challenge you to step up to the fight that you're in. I was eager, very eager to write, he says, to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Because faith is a call to arms. It's a fight against sin. It's a fight towards righteousness and to find true joy. It's not static, it's not passive. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, he tells us. It's a fight that is fueled, and he's talking here about scripture, it's a fight fueled by the book. And is a fight to hold on to the book. Jude is writing around AD 69, almost a generation away from those who lived around Christ. Apostles are aging and beginning to be killed. The New Testament, so far, we have three of the four Gospels, the, what's called the Synoptic Gospels, all the Gospels other than John. We have all of Paul's epistles. We have the other epistles, except John's work. And they've all been accepted as the Word of God, not just the work of the human authors. We see some of this. Jude is incredibly similar to 2 Peter. We'll see that in a number of different ways. And this is important because it tells us that Jude has read that letter and that Jude agrees with the message of that letter. He tells us later on, verse 17, remember what the apostles have written to you. And he quotes 2 Peter 3, verse 3, word for word. Peter, in his letter declares that Paul's letters were authoritative in the same way. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, carries on a little bit here, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. That's a relief to hear, isn't it? Even Peter struggled with some of it. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And then listen to how he finishes it off, because this is the punchline as they do the other scriptures. 
That's the bit I'm most interested in. Peter is saying that Paul's works are to be considered as scripture. That's really significant. It assumes that Paul's work is to be considered scripture too. And then Paul himself encourages us, 2 Timothy 3 verse 60, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so Jude uses the same language here for scripture that Hebrews will use for Jesus' death and resurrection. Hebrews will talk about Jesus offering himself up once for all. Jude will talk about the faith being delivered once for all because he sees God's revelation in scripture and he's thinking specifically about the New Testament because the Old Testament's a done deal. That's already accepted. No one, no one has to have that debate. It's already accepted. Pointless having the conversation. People would wonder why you would even bring that up as a conversation matter. We already accept that. It's what do we do about these new books? He sees them as fully authoritative and sufficient. Now, why labour this? Because every single sin, whether omission, things you didn't do that you should have done, or commission, things that you did do that you shouldn't have did, every single sin comes from and starts with did God really say? Genesis 3, verse 1. Every time, did God really say that? And Jude believes, for people then, and this is true today, the fight that we're in is whether we will trust God at his word. Or will the desires of my flesh or the lies of the devil or the seduction of the world or all three or a couple lead me astray? And so the problem emerges. Look at verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. The word is crept in by the side door. They've slipped in amongst you. False teaching has infiltrated And it needs rooting out. And so there's two connected charges to this false teaching in verse 4. Look at them here. That they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Grace is devalued like the pound as it becomes an excuse just for self-indulgence. All that grace is is my get-out-of-jail-free card after I've done it. That's number one. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And then secondly, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They do that by doing the first one. Pervert the grace of God into sensuality just becomes little more than a get-out-of-jail-free car for me to do the thing I really want to do and that I love more than Jesus. And that denies my master and Lord Jesus Christ because it doesn't accept, as the early church sort of put it and summarized their faith, Jesus is Lord. So I tried to summarize everything by just sort of saying Jesus is Lord over everything, over every area of my life. Jesus is Lord, he's master. There's the message for the moment. But secondly, he gives us verses five to seven here, a story to remember. If you remember the movie, Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, one of the great performances from Christopher Walken in it is his uh, lousy dad, who's a con man and a thief 
and always letting him down. And he has this story that really goes on to sort of defend and reinforce and explain everything that he's about, Frank Abagnale Sr. He says, two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second wouldn't quit. And he struggled and he fought so hard that eventually he churned that cream into butter and crawled out. And it's his go-to story to just basically explain away why he's a crook and a con man. <laughs> well, I'm just that second mouse chucked in a bucket of cream and I'm just fighting and straining desperately to churn it and to crawl out the other way. And this is the means to the end. It's the story that shapes and directs all of his life and later for his son. Well, there's a story here that Jude believes would shape how this church, these churches would view and how they would live in this cultural moment. And it's a very simple story that God saves and God judges. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, it's a story they may have lost sight of in some way and they need to recapture. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who didn't believe. Jude credits Jesus with saving Israel because, again, Jesus is God. And you can't separate Jesus from the actions of God in the Old Testament. That Jesus was there. He was the one who did that. He not only fulfills that whole narrative and that idea of redemption and freedom in the Exodus, but he can do that because he was there the first time. You know, we find ourselves at the cross receiving and benefiting from the fact that Jesus fulfills this narrative, this story again. We find ourselves as humanity enslaved to sin and exiled from God's presence because of sin. A sin that promises life every time but delivers death. And culture knows something of that feeling. You hear it in songs, you see it in movies. Uh, Billie Eilish, I don't know if I'm saying her surname right there. The song, Bury a Friend. She says, for the debt I owe, got to sell my soul, because I can't say no. Enslaved to sin, exiled because of it. Sam Fender, his song, Dead Boys. We close our eyes, learn our pain. No one ever could explain all the dead boys in our hometown. Enslaved to sin, exiled because of sin. Or perhaps a slightly higher brow reference, Henry Theroux in his novel Walden. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Enslaved to sin, exiled because of sin. And so what does God do about our captivity? He does what he did for Israel. He rescues his people. He sends a rescuer. He sends his son. And Jesus, like Moses, leaves the comfort of the palace to live amongst us, to live like us, facing the same struggles, standing with us in our brokenness and in our shame. He wanders the wilderness, awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises, tired, weak, hungry, lonely, tempted, 
and yet sacrificing his personal comfort, he trusts himself to his father so that he could offer himself as a sin offering in our place. He offers himself up to buy us out of slavery, our Passover lamb, a spotless substitute dying a death. We should have died. His blood being spilt in place of ours, leading us through the Red Sea, parting the waters where we surrender to the prospect of of maybe having to die as we go through the water, trusting he'll hold back the waves and he'll lead us to the shoreline, to new life, to freedom. He delivers us from slavery. But more than that, Jesus can make that perfect remix because he played the original. He saved Israel from Egypt and he saves us from sin. But there's a sting in that story, isn't there? There's a crowd saved from Egypt, but there's a crowd who abandoned their saviour who died in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. Because Jesus is always saving and judging. There's hope and there's fear. I want saving. I don't want judgment. And so we run into a modern distortion of Jesus, the hipster Jesus, Where it's almost portrayed as if, you know, the father was sort of so tightly wound, so irritable, that, you know, he just needed to take some time to work on him, to just love himself, to find who he was. And so in the New Testament, God sort of returns in Jesus. He's back from therapy. He's grown his hair out long. He's got into mosaic making. Uh, He now drinks artisanal coffees and pastries. He listens to the Old Testament on vinyl because that's, of course, better. He's toured Morocco in a VW camper van. And now he's just chill. And all the strength is airbrushed out of him. And weakness is injected in. And yet Jesus is gracious and strong. Read of his return in Revelation. He is gracious, but he is strong. God saves God judges. And so there's an encouragement. There's an encouragement to the struggling Christian here. Remember, God saves. Remember, be encouraged. God saves. But there's a warning to imposters posing as Christians. Remember that God judges. And so now Jude gives us a couple of examples from Scripture of this. First example here, and for sake of time, I'm really not going to go too uh, deep into these other than mentioning them. The first example here is the angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority. Speaking of the rebellion of Lucifer and a third of the angels against God, because Lucifer wasn't happy to be uh, working for God, he wanted to be God. So he leads some to rebel against him, and God crushes that rebellion. Then the second example here is just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, and it comes down to them pursuing sexual immorality. They both come back to those two charges in verse 4. Notice that. The angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority. That's not accepting the lordship and the mastery of Jesus. That second charge. 
The example of Sodom and Gomorrah relates to sexual immorality, to that charge in verse 4, that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And in both cases, God judges. And so we must ask the question, is this a bit harsh? I don't think so. The victims of Sodom and Gomorrah were crying out for rescue to God. People were chewed up and spat out by this sexual immorality. The untethering of sex from commitment, love, respect, exclusivity in marriage makes people little more than sexual consumers and consumables, products to be used. Let me ask, since sexuality has become freer, as they say, in the West, has it led to more or less abuse? Has it led to more or less dignity for people? Has it led to more or less respect? Has it led to more or less security in our own skin? Only the willfully blind could argue that it has had positive effects on society. It has not. And it did not here where it was so unhinged, God had to intervene. It is not harsh. It is loving. To be loving, he must judge wickedness like this. So Jude calls them in this moment where they're called to contend for the faith to remember this story that God saves, that Jesus saves and he judges. And this leads to pursuing righteousness and fleeing sin because it changes how you view things and it changes how you live. Thirdly then we see these imposters. Look at verses 8 to 16 here. And again, there's some slightly obscure references, so for sake of time, we won't go into too much depth into some of those. We'll just mention them rather than get caught down the rabbit hole. But look, he raises the imposters here in like manner. That is, in like manner to the rebellious angels, to Sodom and Gomorrah from verses 6 and 7. These people, that is the false teachers, relying on their dreams, he tells us. There's their approach. He's using dreams in a negative sense here. Sometimes dreams is a good thing. At the beginning of Acts, as the gospel breaks forth and the Holy Spirit is given, uh, Peter refers to Joel 2 and this idea that, you know, everybody will dream visions and will see things. And that's dreaming in a positive sense. This is dreaming in a negative sense here. And it's this approach that leads to all the three character traits that are just about to come in verse 8 here. And, and notice... Why he would mention here dreams as well, he's contrasting this. He's contrasting this to instead of being focused on scripture, as he was talking about in verse 3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, here are some people focusing on dreams. A dreamer in the Old Testament was another way of saying a prophet. They claim here to speak for God. And yet the message encourages sin, it rejects Jesus' lordship 
and it blasphemes God's name. Look at these traits that we see there. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, Jude there is thinking about the angels when he says glorious ones. And I think the thing that's in his mind is they're basically doing away with the law and saying that actually, you know what, uh, the grace of God is sufficient that it doesn't matter what you do, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And Jude is thinking about the law that's delivered over by angels and saying, in you so doing this, you're blaspheming them. He's quoting from uh, a story here, later called the Assumption of Moses in verses 9 to 10. We hear about Michael and the devil and Moses' soul. Why does he quote this? It's not a biblical book, but a book that would have been maybe commonly read at the time amongst them. It seems to be a story that was popular with them and perhaps they were twisting. And the basic gist of the story is that Satan argues with the angels to have Moses thrown out of heaven perhaps throws up the accusation of Moses having previously murdered uh, an Egyptian, holds that over him, and Michael answers for him. And yet Michael's answer is that it's God's decision, and it's final. And here's the point that Jude takes from it. God will decide whom he saves and whom he judges. No one should try to speak for God. So Michael didn't. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. These people, though, verse 10, blaspheme all they don't understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Quite a put down. They blaspheme stuff they simply don't understand. And what they think they understand is nothing more than unreasoning instinct that animals have. Francis Bacon, let's put it like this, that man prefers to believe what he prefers to be true. What they don't understand, they don't accept. They blaspheme. What they do understand and they think is so incredibly wise is little more than animalistic instinct. And here's the warning for us. When we don't understand, maybe we should accept that may be down to our incapacity. And when we think we understand oh so well, we might want to exercise a little caution. They walked, verse 11, in the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He gives three examples here from the Old Testament, again, of disobedience and God's judgment on it. Cain disobeyed God's call to give a blood sacrifice, offering vegetables and fruits instead. And yet, and here's the point I think in Jude's mind, uh, he still expected God to bless him the same. And he's angry with God because he doesn't give him the same blessing as to Abel. So God will respond, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But these people just the same. Don't do what's right and yet expect God to bless them all the same. Balaam helped the Moabites to compromise Israel so they'd be defeated all so he could gain some money. I think he thinks again that these people are looking to make money. And then Korah rebelled against Moses and took others with him. But really rebelled against God. 
tried to lead the people away because he wanted to be in charge. And again, I think the suggestion in why Jude quotes this is that's exactly the same spirit that is here. These are hidden blemishes at your love feasts. It's a poison that they've introduced that's intoxicated the whole church. And then there's five images of this that uh, Jude gives us in verses 12 to 13. They're greedy shepherds, shepherds feeding themselves. Their teaching doesn't feed the flock, it feeds their own ego. They're empty clouds, waterless clouds. They promise much, they deliver little. They're barren trees, fruitless trees in late autumn when you would expect uh, there to be fruit, twice dead, uprooted. They're stormy waves, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam from their shame. Their lives are chaos, crisis to crisis, and they're wandering stars. You know, at this time, you would navigate by the stars. A wandering star is useless to you because it's completely unreliable. You can't navigate by it. It's dangerous. It was about these that Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied. Again, this is not a biblical book that uh, Jude is quoting, but again, the story there is about the sort of godlessness that arises up within the people of God at the end of time and God's judgment upon that. He's saying, well, this is coming to bear in these characters. There was five images of this, and then lastly here, there are five fruits. They're grumblers, complainers. In fact, actually, the word could be whingers. They're malcontents, fault finders. The word is complaining of their lot, following their own sinful desires, self-explanatory, loud-mouthed boasters, always talking up themselves, and fifthly, showing favoritism. In fact, actually, the word there is flattering faces to gain advantage, to gain profit. Imposters have crept in, but Jude exposes them. As his brother had said, you will know them by their fruits. And we see that throughout this story. Verse 8. Relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 12 to 13. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You will know them by their fruits. Here's the imposters among them. But lastly, Jude ends on a really positive note because what of the faithful? And we hear here of the fate of the faithful. Firstly, we see the mind of the faithful, verses 17 to 19, that the faithful must protect their mindset, viewing the moment through scripture. You must remember, beloved, verse 17, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude points them to the New Testament epistles. That's why I earlier on labored that point about the way in which these are seen and accepted as the word of God, because he's pointing them back to them now. They said to you, this tells us one, simply, they know the New Testament letters. He can say they said to you and expect that they know because they've read it and they've heard it and they've accepted it as the word of God. But secondly, there's another interesting thing going on here because you might have a footnote there with you that might actually say that it could be translated, Christ said 
because they said to you, because all their words are God's words here. And he quotes from 2 Peter 3, verse 3, immediately after. It's these, he tells us, the impostors, not the apostles, who cause divisions, who are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. It's nothing more than what has been predicted to protect the mindset. But secondly, look at the life of the faithful there, verses 20 to 23. There's a clear contrast in the lives of impostors and of the faithful. And it manifests internally and externally, inside and outside. Look at this. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Not in this sort of vain glory that comes and then goes of human approval. Building themselves up in the faith. Secondly, praying in the Holy Spirit. Not grumbling at your lot. Thirdly, keep yourselves in the love of God, he says. Not fulfilling the flesh's desires. And then lastly, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not grasping for glory now. But then it works externally as well. It has an effect on how you then treat others. Have mercy on those who doubt. Be gentle. And yet, you don't leave them. Gentleness doesn't mean leaving people who doubt and letting them sit in doubt. Because he next says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And then lastly, to others show mercy with fear. I think the point here is be cautious because sin is deceptive. Sin is seductive. And you never think that you'll be the one to do it. To others, show mercy with fear. Don't get caught up in it yourself. But then lastly here, we see that hope for the faithful. Now there's the really good news for those worried that they may not last. There's one who carries you home. Now to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory. One who is able to keep you, able to keep you faultless and flawless, even more so than James Corden thinks in his own mind. I don't know if you heard that story of him this week and his horrible behavior, entitlement and, uh, and stuff in a restaurant. And his response to it in a New York Times interview, I think, this week was, I haven't done anything wrong on any level. I feel so zen about the whole thing. This is what Jesus can actually do for you, to feel that flawless. I've not done anything wrong on any level. To him who is able, now we look. How do I know that I will be faithful? I don't. But there's one who always was and always is, and he will hold me up. It's the very opposite of verse 4 and those charges against the false teachers, those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we look to our Lord and master Jesus Christ and throw ourselves upon him in dependence to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. The faithful find hope in the all-sufficiency of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus as Lord, the very opposite of what was going on in verse 4. And it leads us 
to humility, to worship. And believer, you are, as verse 2 told you, called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And Christ will indeed multiply to you, as verse 2 asked, mercy, peace, and love if you keep in the fight. See, faith is believing what you know is true, even when it's hard, even when you don't really feel it, even when the noise of the world is really quite loud. You do that by trusting in the word and rooting yourself in it. And the word reminds you that Jesus died for you and that Jesus holds you up when you can't hold yourself. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together.